Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, creators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. It refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. Ahali is freed from the binding understanding of kinship, origin, or belief. It's about a culture of being together. Ahali generates a knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So welcome to Ahali Conversations. In this episode, we are hosting Celine Condarelli, an incredible artist with a sharp and critical mind. She's a longtime friend and collaborator, and you will hear how beautifully elaborate Celine is when tackling questions around generating platforms and playing host with her work. She makes a call for defending the rights and recognition for all those who make cultural production possible. And with that, we touch upon how artists can position themselves with respect to society, its institutions, and the audiences. Celine gives us insight on how she deals with engagement, care, maintenance, as well as the recent developments in her work with regards to concepts of labor and leisure. From ecology to work, public spaces to friendship and support, Celine's inquiries hit the core of culture production today. So without further ado, we welcome Celine Condorelli to Ahali. So Celine, first of all, welcome and thanks for joining us on this summer morning. Celine Condorelli is someone who's not only a friend, but someone I find really close in terms of our modes of thinking, modes of operating and practice in general. And I'm certain the feeling is mutual. So it's really exceptional to have you over, Celine, and to be able to discuss a bit more on what you are thinking these days and also your practice in general. So I'm going to start right away with a number of questions. Maybe we can start with the more kind of spatial works, the settings or the stages that you produce almost like sculptural pieces that offer themselves to be acted upon. And sometimes these are quite open for people to kind of engage with. And sometimes they come with a certain script or they are in a way scripted or they have these inherent layers. So I want to start very broadly, like the question of positioning oneself and how do you position yourself with respect to setting up these kinds of works and stages, so to say. Thanks, Jan. Uh, I mean, first thing to say is that, yes, the feeling of closeness is mutual, so much so that I often talk about your work as the work of my alter ego. <laughs> I think <laughs> there is in, an, in a different life or in a different context, there's all this work that's being done that I can totally relate to. And sometimes or quite often I think, oh, yeah, that really needed to be done. <laughs> which I find incredibly reassuring, actually, in some ways. Yeah. Uh, because even if we're not working together, the work continues somewhere. So that's very nice. Yeah. I mean, just this morning, I was showing us a, a work that you did recently, which is almost like to the T, same as something we are thinking and discussing. So yeah. sometimes it gets creepy. <laughs> I think that's okay, actually. 
as long as we collaborate and keep talking, I actually think that's quite okay. Totally. It's important to have allies also. I mean, that's how I think. But I mean, to go back to your question, I mean, you know, this is of course something that we relate each other very well to, which is the the construction of platforms as a way of contributing to a cultural landscape or to cultural production, which means taking a particular position, which is not the traditional position given to the artist or the architect or the designer, to be somewhere in between. But it comes from a very simple question, in, in my case at least, which was, especially when I was starting out, working with an exhibition context was the need to acknowledge the work of those who have come before me that have allowed the conditions in which I can work. So something as obvious as, you know, who made the floor, who made the walls, who created the institution, who drafted the contracts, who was actually part of the setting up of the space so that I can actually enter it and start working. All of that work is usually made invisible. We are taught to not see it. And that form of blindness for me really raised the question of like, what happens if I take the position of the wall, of the floor, of the institutional framework? What happens if instead of just putting an object on top of the work of others, I make a structure or a platform, allow some attention to that kind of work, and therefore I'm able to invite others It's not an easy position, especially when you're starting out, because it's kind of easy to say when you've been working for 20 years and people kind of know what you're doing and they invite you to do that. But when you're starting out as an artist or working in the art world, that shift, you know, asking institutions to shift their focus, to recognize the work of those who are traditionally unseen and therefore allow you to work in there is not that easy. Uh, So it takes a whole setting up as well of a discourse around it. I mean, I think there are multiple things to unpack here. Uh, One is the question of inhabiting, because we are always already kind of inhabiting institutions, inhabiting this world, society. And I think in a way, searching for ways in which to address that inhabitation and also in a way to rewrite some of the codes and norms of that which we inhabit. So that's one thing. And the other thing is also a question of foregrounding the background, maybe you could say, because that blindness towards the background is also related to the assumptions, to presuppositions, and like this is how it's supposed to be, and we bring something in, versus you are saying like the gesture is, I think, is one of foregrounding the background and putting those positions of activity, of practice to question. Yeah, I mean, obviously this is a work against hierarchies, right? Mm -hmm. The hierarchies of who is allowed to appear, whose name is on the list, whose work is valuable, whose work is not valuable. Recognizing the practices, the labor and the people who would otherwise not be. But as any of those choices, you know, it's a choice to work from, So you take that position and then there's lots of things you can do, of course. Sometimes it's more successful than others, but uh, it sort of opens up a world of possibilities. But the consequences are also that certain things you cannot do anymore, right? Once you take that position, it's very difficult to, I would say, 
while work in a more traditional way in some ways, to accept certain structures, to not question the terms as they are given to you, for example, the terms of a contract as they are presented. You know, I'm the artist who's like a total pain in the ass. When I get a contract, I'm actually sitting there saying, no, that's not okay. I don't think this is reasonable and I want to be paid double. (laughs) (laughs) The last part in particular. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, that part in particular. I want to be paid double. In general, I want to be paid double. Yeah. No, fair enough. And also, I think one common thread is maybe not surprisingly, but almost all of our conversations, this topic of the contract has come uh, up in, in the discussions. And that also shows the legal constructs of these institutions. And again, there is one facade of cultural practice, which is what's on display, what's being showcased, and what's used or consumed by its audiences. And then there is also the dimension of work, the dimension of labor, the dimension of actual cultural production, which is in itself looks a lot like probably many other professions in terms of, let's say, the legal binding issues, the actuality of fabricating matter, and putting it into some use, the amount of labor and energy that is being put at play. And that's something that maybe worth positioning in regards to what you are saying. That's what got me thinking about. Yeah, and it's those things are actually quite complicated, right? Because it's not as simple as I just explained in a way. There's, uh, you know, there's certainly the hierarchy of whose work is actually recognized. Like, for example, mm-hmm. the artist is named, the cleaning lady is not named, or, you know, the people who have built the wall are not named. However, the artist is often the only person in the room who's not being paid, mm-hmm. which is also a different kind of hierarchy, you know, which is a very much a hierarchy on the capitalization of artworks, of course. But all of this goes hand in hand with much larger movements that are not just about artists, of course, that you've just uh, hinted at, which is the intense precarization of labor that has happened over the last 20 years. And of course, you know, the cultural landscape is part of that, meaning everybody's working on these short-term contracts with or zero-hour contracts with absolutely no security, no possibility of freedom from work, and artists are just part of that. Now, as an artist, I don't want to support that system Right. So in a way, proposing otherwise, even if it's just within the context of an exhibition of a project, is a way of exposing the problems and in some ways protesting against them or refusing the terms as they are given to you. Even if it means it's just the one time that, yes, the cleaning personnel is going to have their names on the credit and you're arguing that everybody should be paid the same, at least during the the period of the installation. I don't think those are empty gestures because I think the one enormous capacity that exhibitions have is to make issues public. So at least it means that there is an audience and there is a working context in which some justice is made. You know, like (laughs) you're hoping that there are consequences, but justice is made or at least attempted to. And also, I mean, with regards to cultural production, I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of, making meaning, so to say, but it's also proposing other possibilities and also developing models or model making within the within still the confines of the art industry or the, the institutional context, as you say, but still 
that question of model making, I think, is still important and worth pursuing. And you are referring to something particular with this project. How then do you make this visible or how do you put this into discussion as part of the work or as part of an exhibition or publication? Yeah, this is maybe a question also to you in some ways. I mean, I can describe a little bit the project that I'm working on, on those things. But I think one of the biggest problems we face is that all of that work that we've just described is largely invisible. Right? When you go and see an exhibition, when you do a publication, when a journalist asks you for photographs of your work, that's not what they see because it's impossible to photograph. So there's also that difficulty in negotiating what remains and how much you have to start from the beginning. But yeah, I mean, I am working right now. I'm developing an exhibition for an institution called Frac Lorraine, which is a public institution in the east of France in Metz part of this quite interesting network of public institutions, a little bit like the Kunstvereins in Germany, which is called the FAC, that are regional collection-based museums. So not in Paris is the main thing. In France is not in Paris <laughs> somehow. Uh, and I'm focusing on this issue of labour, but from looking at its opposite, because in some ways I've worked on work quite a lot, I've discussed work quite a lot, but I realised when reading some texts that a history of leisure, the history of free time is also the history of work because it's, of course, it's necessary negative. All the labor struggles to secure an end to the working day, the eight hour working day, are the struggles in order to free some time from work in order to do other things like take care of oneself, take care of one's relationships and be free in the sense of associating oneself with what you choose to do in your free time, mm -hmm. right? It's a time that you're not forced to do certain things. So I think that line from work to leisure is quite an interesting conceptual structure to construct an exhibition on. Of course, things are much more complicated. We now work all the time. But um, the Frac Lorraine has quite an interesting collection on partly that deals with labor, a lot that deals with the feminist movements around wages for housework. Like, mm. for example, the Mills Euclides are there or the Martha Rosler film, uh, The Semiotics of the Kitchen, which were things that were really important to me when I was working on these issues. So I've constructed the show using my own work as a frame, mm -hmm. but of course there are works in there starting from the public space, the ground floor of the institutions dealing with leisure, public space, leisure, time spent outdoors, going all the way up to the institution towards more and more labor-based. And the, the pin, the sort of central articulation, is on a work that they have in the collection, which I absolutely adore, which is the Harun Farouki 12 decades of leaving the factory. The workers leaving the factories through 12 decades which are films that he didn't make, but he collected from the very first film that was ever made, apparently by the Lumiere brothers, of workers leaving a factory in France through the decades. And of course, what you see, you see workers leaving the factory throughout history, again and again and again, leaving the space of labor and entering the space of leisure, free time, in theory, right? And in theory, also the space in which culture relies, because of course, as an artist, I make work for people's free time. 
in many ways, right? I mean, as Dan Graham said, I mean, work for parents and children at weekends. And it's not a criticism, quite the opposite. I think this recreational aspect is something that needs to be taken on as the responsibility of an artist as well, that you're inhabiting with your own labor, the free time of society. Mm-hmm. Several interesting things that I want to point on. One is the one dimension that I maybe it's worth opening up now is the question of works that host other works, which is again something familiar that we both operate on. And in that sense, how you allow other artworks or referential or actual and other stories to inhabit your own work, your own exhibition, your own works of art. And which relates to partly to the question of display, but something I think much more deeper than that. And to me, I find interesting that now that you mentioned Harun Farouk, it's also a kind of work that hosts other works because he's composing his own work through taking and appropriating or remixing that are works that are already existing. And I don't know if you want to go into this direction, this question of Obviously, the display is something that you have been dealing with for a long time, but also this question of works that host other works. Yeah, I mean, look, I have an answer to this question, which is a very personal answer, and it's back to the position that we were discussing earlier, but I'd be interested in asking you the same. But my position in regards to this is that work doesn't just come from nowhere. Yeah, Ideas, artworks films, sculptures, any kind of cultural production, of course, is made through referring to the work of others, reading, looking at things, seeing exhibitions, discussing with people. And those relationships, for lack of a better word, are what allows one to work. Now, the historical way to display work, whether it's in a book or in an exhibition, or in a film, actually, in a, in a cinema, is that you only have the name of the author. However, you know, like in a book, for example, the work of others gets relegated to the footnotes that are at the bottom of the page, written really, really small to make sure that we make the difference between the author, who's like this genius, and then everybody else. Now, that's not how I work, of course. Nobody works like this. So I enjoy, and I think it is important to work on top of work, on top of work, on top of work, which means mixing everything up and allowing work to appear in layers, which makes it harder to read, but is, I think, a better reflection of how culture actually gets produced. So the work of Faroki is next to something else that allows me to think of a new work that might be on top or underneath or next to. And this uh, stratification, I think, is the production of culture and in some ways the production of the real as well. So by doing that, I think I expose a thinking process, which sometimes creates uncomfortable situations because artists don't necessarily like to have their work shown like this. You know, they want four meters of white space next to their sculpture. But uh, I think it's a worthwhile position. Again, you know, that's just the way I make exhibitions. It's not for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I have a similar answer, which is, again, like by nature, as you said, cultural production involves an accumulation and the kind of stacking of work on top of works. But it's also, in a way, a matter of interpretation, performance. You know, you perform what you have, in a way, been exposed to through time, and you do it in a certain other way, 
and that's the essence of cultural production. I mean, that's the essence of any, not only visual arts, any mode of cultural production is you learn from the previous ones and you build on top of them. However, there is, in the case of especially visual arts and contemporary art, as you mentioned, there is still the question of authorship. And sometimes it means that certain authors feel violated if their work is shown. So that's one dimension, as you mentioned. But there is also another dimension, which is the fact that the hierarchy is still there because you are, or we are, reworking those works to come up with a new statement. And that's, I think, something worth taking responsibility of. So instead of pulling yourself to the background, I think it's more a matter of, again, I will repeat, but foregrounding that background and playing with the hierarchy in that sense, but still kind of taking responsibility of authorship in a sense, because it is a kind of great feat, so to say, to be able to do these things like you do. Yeah, but also I think in order to invite others Mm -hmm. in that way, you have to be a good host, right? There's something very simple about that in the way that you welcome others so that they feel welcome and they don't feel that their work is erased, but is somehow honored. And this is something that I think your projects really deal with, you know, this idea of you're not just providing a platform, you have to be a good host, which first of all means that you have to be there. You really have to be physically present hosting and it's incredibly time consuming. It's a lot of labor. A lot of it is invisible and it's very difficult. But talking about this reminds me of some of your projects like the radio station. No, recording studio. Recording sorry. studio, yeah. Recording studio, not right. <laughs> studio that you, you did in Istanbul where you, you know, the amount of time that you had to spend there in order for this thing to work. It's really interesting because you're part of the structure, right? The host is part of the structure, which is, yeah, that's been kind of tricky. Also can be quite difficult. No, I mean, this position of the host is, I hadn't thought of it, but I mean, it's kind of obvious maybe, but also a very strong reminder of, uh, in terms of positioning oneself. And the question of relationships, perhaps we can move on to is, like you've always been someone who is for a discussion of relationships, friendship, kinship. And through time, I see it's not only with like living people, such as the company you keep, but also with people who have lived in the past, but also with plants. I mean, the Monstera Deliciosa, I think you have an affinity with it from a distance, or curtains, for example, objects. So this kinship and relationship with people living and no longer living, objects, other living beings. Do you have something to say about that? <laughs> yes, I was going to say that this is a slightly different strategy to your work because I think you deal very much with people who are alive. <laughs> your projects are often very crowded. <laughs> <laughs> and my projects are often full of dead people. It's true. <laughs> but yeah, so look, this is something that is important to me. And as you say, I've spent quite a lot of time working on which is a question of affinity, again, bringing those relationships to the foreground, regardless of what they are, meaning the book that I've been carrying around and referring to, I think can be present, but also this idea of dialogue 
and always making work in relationship to other things, I think can be on display. And in order for it to be on display, not as an illustration, but as a, you know, a relationship that keeps being weaved, I make work that can be interacted with or inhabited sometimes by humans and sometimes by other things. You know, like, for example, one of those structures I'm working on, which are support structures for plants to grow on. Mm -hmm. I really like, you know, it's like a really pleasurable physical artwork to work on. I don't often make things that are really formal, but it comes out of this like simple desire to make something that would gradually transform over the period of an exhibition. It is somehow a dialogue with a plant, however stupid that might seem which means that by the end of the exhibition, probably the structure will disappear because the plant grows really fast and it will entirely cover it. But I think in some ways, in a really modest way, it highlights this idea of artworks being in relationship with other things and the fact that things change. Inhabitation does change a space and the space changes objects, of course, so that something is not the same anymore. And plants, of course, are a very um, useful tool for that. We use plants to... You know, when, when you move into a new house, you move your house plants because it makes the place feel a bit more familiar, right? Plants are also used to tame institutional space, like house plants as well as office plants. You know, there's a whole vocabulary of tropical, subtropical plants that are used to make office spaces or institutional spaces feel less scary or intimidating. Like those plants are what I'm interested in. Yeah. Uh, they all come yeah. from the history of colonialism and they they help us inhabit space and occupy it somehow. And similar to the art museum, their history is one of colonial, almost a violent origin. But nevertheless, the way they operate in uh, our lives today is quite essential. And I mean, uh, you explained very nice, but suddenly I remembered the fact that when we were working with the Van Abbe Museum, there were all these plants in the offices and one of the curators told me that, oh, these are part of the Silicon Valley work and we have to take good care of them. And uh, so while the other components of the work are in the storage somewhere, the plants are alive and being taken care of the office by the curators who work in the museum. And that kind of also maybe touches on, of course, you have to be there, but then there comes a point where you hand over the project, pass it on to someone else to be responsible, to host it. And in the case of the plants, as part of your work, take care of them and make sure they live a relatively good life. Yeah. I mean, it highlights lots of issues that I, it was really wonderful to work on with a place like the Van Abbe Museum, of course, because it's a particularly interesting institution in terms of thinking of what a collection is, right? So what is a collection? Can a plant enter a collection? And it was really curious to me that with a history of artworks that include plants, because there's lots, right? Like Marcel Brutaus is one of the most famous ones. None of the plants in those artworks were ever part of the collection officially, meaning whoever buys those works, like the Marcel Brutaus with the palms, the plants have to be bought every time that they are shown and they are thrown away at the end of every exhibition. Mm. And I thought, like, how strange in a way, because, of course, including a plant in an artwork includes a certain amount of care. So why should the care not enter the responsibility of a collection since there's so much care that is taken of artworks? 
you know, that's what the primary role of a museum collection is, is to take care of things for the future. But then it highlights lots of different questions. Of course, you can't put plants in the storage. Of course, you have to find other protocols and uh, the responsibility that the institution takes when buying an artwork that is really highlighted with that. So at the Vanabe, we found this really nice contractual agreement that the plants are part of a much larger sculpture on which they climb. The sculpture goes to the storage and in its box and it sits in the dark when it's not being shown. And the plants go to the offices and are taken care of. So they're adopted by somebody who wants to have their space decorated because it's quite nice to work next to a plant, of course. If they die, they can be replaced, but at least they try and take care of them so that when the artwork comes out of storage again, the same plant comes to inhabit it. This is only possible because it's an artwork that is specifically about friendship. And I thought you can't make an artwork about friendship that includes killing plants, right? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so somehow taking the consequences of that. And it also means that the artwork inhabits the institution in a way that is invisible to the public, but very, very present for people who are working there, which I also think is a it is an interesting way of thinking of the relationship and the responsibilities towards culture. Definitely. And was this written in the contract or was this a handshake agreement? No, we found a way of writing it in the contract. You know, I think it was important that it was non-binding so people are not terrified if the plants die. But that, <laughs> that element of care is somehow included in it. But, you know, there are lots of complications to it and I'm really grateful that the institution was also interested in doing that for example when the piece is loaned which it is once in a while it's shown elsewhere or I borrow it for a show elsewhere you know plants can't travel in a normal art transport because mm -hmm. it doesn't have light you know they can't spend three days in a truck mm -hmm. so you have all these other things that are in the contract so if they have to travel in a van the van has to stop every eight hours and open the bag so they get a bit of sunlight for at least an hour and it's really like taking care of a living thing well it uh, is <laughs> yeah so one image that suddenly sparked and i think you did work around that too is the way plants were in a way used for decoration in art exhibitions even up until the 50s, 60s, for example, in places like the MoMA. Uh, 80. 80, up until 80s. Wow. They should come back for sure. Uh, <laughs> maybe not as decoration necessarily, but decoration is also good. I think decoration is underrated. There is so much. Yeah, so, I mean, just to explain what you've just said, what Jan just mentioned is that through this work with plants, I sort of uncovered this alternative exhibition history by going through the archive of uh, MoMA. The only reason why I did the MoMA is because our archive is online, so it's easy to access. And found that between the 30s, but I mean, the photographs start in the 30s, so it could have started earlier probably. But between the 30s and the 1980s, the exhibition shots that document the history of exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York include house plants, these subtropical plants that I was discussing earlier to decorate exhibitions, which seems to us completely weird, of course. And they start from disappearing in the 70s and then completely disappear in the 80s as the insurance policies start changing 
And of course, once the, the artworks become so valuable that having a living thing in a room that might attract insects or mold becomes basically impossible to ensure, so they start being removed. But, you know, what are those plants doing somehow? You know, all those philodendrons, those plants, those monstra deliciosa, these like quite graphic plants, they help to make the space of the exhibition habitable again. Right. They have a very, very simple role, which is that that when you enter a room in which there is a houseplant, there is, in a way, someone there before you. And it makes the space less intimidating because contemporary art, modern art has often had this problem of feeling so intimidating or being made to be intimidating for people who are not somehow educated or who mm. are not the right audience. I mean, all that with inverted commas, of course, because I totally disagree with it. But the houseplant in some ways is supposed to deal with this by providing a more welcome environment so you don't feel so alone and so exposed when you're looking at, you know, that weird thing on a white wall. And kind of providing an always already community of other living beings that uh, inhabit the exhibition together with you. But maybe from here we can move on to art works that you make for spaces that are not necessarily or let's say non-designated spaces of art, meaning other modes of public spaces and also works in the open. How does these dimensions come into play in terms of hosting, in terms of opening itself up to use? How do you deal with the realities of, let's say, non-art designated spaces? Yeah, I mean, that's a really obvious kind of relationship to it. I mean, you know, two things to say about this is that one, I deal with it really well because I really enjoy working outside the gallery space. <laughs> Secondly, what I would call the sort of public art practice, meaning works in public space or outside museum spaces, even though the categories are not so strict. In a way, I was only able to really develop it because I had a break from teaching. Because I think teaching is very much, in a way, working in public space. You know, it's this other practice that comes with social responsibility, which is extremely important. But the last three years, I haven't been teaching, so I did a lot more public work somehow, starting from a playground that I'm working on with South London Gallery. And so that is in South London that will hopefully open this autumn to a sculpture garden in Australia, a sort of seating area with a garden in King's Cross. I mean, what those things have in common is that, and the reason why I say that I deal with it really well, is that they really allow me, those spaces really allow me to make objects that, yes, are artworks, but also just become part of the urban fabric and therefore can be in some ways ignored Because I think when something is truly public is when it just becomes part of the city. So you can approach the thing and, you know, as an art historian, or you can just approach it as somewhere to sit on or somewhere for your four-year-old to climb on. And I'm extremely comfortable with that because I do think that is making things public. So I really enjoy being invited to work in these kinds of contexts in which you can weave the new You know, the change, the slightly different structure into a landscape in which it will be integrated. Again, that's not for everybody, you know, I realize it's not for everybody, but uh, I find that it has been an extremely successful way to test larger ideas around 
audiences and public space and usable art and, you know, like these multiple lives that artworks can actually have. But as you say, also, you know, once the artwork is done, therefore I construct the thing, for example, in King's Cross, it's like this really large sort of concrete landscape with uh, huge tropical plants. So it's almost like an indoor garden. There's two pieces indoors and one outdoors. Once that's made, my work is done. I leave, but that's when people start inhabiting it, right? So the the real life of the piece starts when I'm gone. Mm. So kind of the opposite of some of the platforms that you've been doing in that sense. Yeah, that's true. And do you keep track of them or do you visit them or do you tend to let them be? How do you, the postpartum? <laughs> so look, it's a combination of things. You know, as you know, artworks are not necessarily that hard wearing. <laughs> and some of them really take a bashing. And it's sometimes a little bit painful to go and see artworks being destroyed. I spend so much time repairing things. You know, that's one thing I hate about this practice. I spend so much time and energy repairing things because once you offer things for use, they get destroyed, of course. You know, like that's a natural consequence. And I, I honor that responsibility, but it is really depressing to repair things all the time. <laughs> so, for example, in the case of the King's Cross piece, I go there once in a while and I'm a little bit shy about it. I don't get too close. I just look at how it's wearing. And if I think it's just looking a bit too disgusting or the plants are not doing well, I arrange for it to be fixed. It just takes a lot of maintenance somehow. Yeah. And I'm never sure whether the maintenance is completely my work in a way. Again, to go back to the contract, if it's written into the contract, it should not be my responsibility for 30 years to go and say, guys, the alocasia is not looking very well. Have you been watering it enough? You know, it's Imagine inheriting uh, such a duty from your parents. <laughs> But I think this question of maintenance is still very interesting one because it directly relates to the question of care in the context of the museum that we mentioned. So I think there is still a lot of potential in that question of maintenance and also considering that repair in itself has become, in a way, so much externalized and almost non-existing in everyday products that I think it's bringing it into discussion or finding ways to bring it into discussion after this experience could be interesting. I mean, I know yeah. that wasn't the intention for these works, but nevertheless, it really resonated with what you are thinking and discussing oh, about. Absolutely. I mean, the issue of care and repair and alteration through time is uh, really really important through this but you know just to say that you know artworks need repair in general right when you're looking through museum collections there's always a huge amount of works that are being restored or repaired somewhere by someone either in the building or outside and that is largely unseen there's a lot of artworks especially from the history of modern and contemporary art that are not made to last, you know, that are on supports and materials that actually disintegrate. So all of the questions of how to do with those, that kind of inheritance and how to bring it to the future or and whether it should be brought to the future, I think is you know, absolutely a huge part of it. And how much of that is or isn't the responsibility of the artist once something is in a public collection, whether it's the collection of the city, as in the case of some of my works, or the collection of a museum, 
in some ways, it's not so much about the artist. It's not about you taking care of your own cultural heritage, but it becomes part of everything else. I mean, as you know, every park in the city, wherever you live, is also taken care of. So, you know, the conversation with plants or the relationship with plants is actually quite useful in those terms. You know that you need gardeners to go on a regular basis if you want a garden to look kind of decent, but often artworks are considered dead things, mm-hmm. you know, that stay and remain forever in the shape that they are, but that's not actually the reality of them. Far from it, but even like in the case of those works that are maybe meant to last, other values come into play. I'm suddenly remembered the a project I did in Utrecht, which was uh, called Cohab. And I was looking at the public sculptures in the city and just a tiny example of one of the stories that I discovered was they have these kind of valuable sculptures in their collection, but let's say art historically valuable, for example, a Barbara Hepworth. But the city is worried that it will be stolen not for its art historical value, but for recycling the bronze that is used in it. So in a way, like there is the... Hepworth Foundation, which doesn't allow them to make a replica to a place in the public space. Uh, they have the object, which is very valuable, and they are worried that the theft of this object will not happen due to its actual value, but uh, due to its kind of material value. So I was really amazed with this, the layers so that it unraveled. They cannot show it. No, it's in the storage. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? Interesting to think of the weight of that notion of cultural heritage, which of course is not about the objects, but what to do with them. What do you do with those things and how do you actually treat them somehow? Yeah. I have a question to you, actually. To me or to the group? Yes, you, Jonathan. Yeah, for sure. In relationship to that invisibility that we were talking about, the invisibility of your own practice, meaning Mm -hmm. that unless I follow you for a whole year, I would never be able to put together all the fragments that make up what you're working on right now. <laughs> maybe still not. <laughs> yeah, maybe still not, right? Maybe still not. Is this something that you struggle with or do you just embrace it as the fact that things just vanish? And has that changed with time? Definitely changed with time. And you unavoidably, as one inhabits these kind of frames or constructs, you always end up maybe sometimes doing checks and balances in terms of like how it fits or how it resonates. So through time, I've struggled with various things. More recently, I've come to, I think this time, a true reconciliation of all the activity that I do is a kind of in whole my work, which actually it was, but I was always trying to compartmentalize to fit into the expectancies for acceptance. So I totally, for the time being, gave up on that. And I'm more intrigued by the core questions and in a sense, the core values that drives me to develop work further. And whether that happens in the form of a classroom, whether that happens in the form of a setting, like the recording studio, whether that happens in the form of a podcast, or conversation series like we are doing now. In total, I hope will, at least to me, it started uh, making much more sense to think of a consolidated existence with regards to my work. And that compartmentalization 
had actually hurt me in the past because I was always trying to divide and fit and that gets schizoid or also very unnecessarily. And so, yeah, for me, I'm, I'm at a point that like, this is what I do and these are the things I operate in. And if I'm interested in a particular form or mode of operation, I don't uh, stop myself from exploring it as well. Yeah, I wonder, because I feel very much the same, but I also wonder, at least in my case, whether that hasn't come after, you know, because after 20 years, you know, there are, there's been solo shows and works and collections and books and this and that. So in a way, that stuff continues. Mm -hmm. So I don't have to revendicate my own position all the time in some ways which is incredibly relaxing right when you don't have to explain to people that you are you know you are an artist <laughs> <laughs> even though you might not make artworks sometimes you make artworks or sometimes not but in some ways i always think that that's not so useful for young artists because it's only those 20 that let's say that body of work of 20 years that has allowed me to be so relaxed about those disciplines or the disciplinary divisions between things. Yes, of course, it makes much more sense when you're interested in specific issues to think, okay, I'm working on this. What is the best way of dealing with this idea? Is it through a seminar or an article or an exhibition or an artwork? Because it doesn't all have to sum itself up through an exhibition format, of course. Yeah. But what you said reminded me of, the, for example, the film program you did around ecology and climate change. And in my case, like what we are doing now, there are other possibilities of learning for yeah. oneself and for others and learning in public in a way together with a group, with a community, with an audience or what have you. And that's, that's also valuable. And the exhibition format or the finalized artwork to be encountered may not always be the sufficient mode of working and production with regards to that. And one thing that I really admired about your film program as such was that it was at once a summary of what you are investigating, but you were also sharing that investigation process. And those kinds of outlets, uh, those kinds of exposures and moments of sharing is also, I think, super valuable. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's something a little bit selfish about it, right? I always think. But that's also very generous, which is the fact that you use an opportunity like an exhibition invitation. In my case, I get invited to do a lot of exhibitions. And most of the invitations, people want a really large sculptural intervention. <laughs> <laughs> like a big curtain, for example, you know, like, honestly, like most people have an expectations when they invite you and it's the image of something that you've done before. And that's what they want you to do again. And then using an opportunity like this, not to repeat something that I've already done, but actually learn something new, something that I think is important or that I feel ignorant about, but I really want to learn is a huge privilege, right? It's an incredible privilege. But you also have to somehow convince the institution. I mean, for me, the cinema that you're talking about, which I've done in two formats, is that was a really good format to deal with both the expectations of the institution because there is a massive curtain, but the massive curtain is both a sculpture and a cinema in which, of course, the films are not made by me, but it allows me to host a film program and to get help in developing that film program. 
so that I continue to learn about the issues of climate change. And I continue to make it present in the institution also, you know, which is sometimes a slightly more difficult thing to do. Also, on the other selfish thing is that, you know, I haven't got time to go to school and learn on so many things, but that's a way of making the schooling part of the projects in a way. Yes, the educating yourself in public, that takes a bit of confidence huh, also, because it means you take the position of the person who doesn't know. I invite you to talk to me because I need to learn and I don't know enough about this issue. But yeah, I think it gives quite a lot as a public program, as a public encounter for other people somehow. I think it does. And the exposure is always comes with its vulnerabilities. And especially in cases such as this one, of course, it's even more. Um, Actually, the film program might come to Salt Istanbul next year, okay. by the way. Uh, we are working on it. So let's see if it works out. But uh, I'm discussing with the cooking sections to mm. somehow have it inhabit part of their show. Fantastic. Let us know. Yeah. Uh, you work a lot in compilations and also in the past, I know you did like mixtapes. Uh, so for Ara Hali, are there any films, books or music that you want to share, recommend or things that are you are into right now? Uh-huh. So look, the one thing that comes to mind is a film called Deserto Rosso that I'm sure most of you have heard about which is extremely beautiful and I watched again recently because it came up in a conversation with Wendelin van Oldenburg mm -hmm. and I've never looked at it as the alienation of labor, but it is absolutely there, absolutely there. Really amazing thing to look at in terms of, uh, you know, so the main character is a woman who is officially going crazy and the going crazy, of course, is her feeling a total alienation to the work of, labor but her husband is the manager of a factory and it, this also happens through color color saturation very beautiful film that's quite high up on my list i'm reading Maurizio lazzarato as i've just said but i think you know a lot of his really interesting work unfortunately has not been translated but he's working on a new book right now but highly recommended and what am i listening to not sure might have to come back to that later we can always add to the episode notes or to our website. You can email me your recommendations. <laughs> I think I owe you a mixtape. <laughs> there is one for last year, actually. That was the point. <laughs> I owe you a mixtape. <laughs> so I think this is the time to say We're goodbye. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I hope everybody enjoyed it as much as I did because it was... Uh, really a blast for me. Thank you so much, Celine. Great pleasure to talk to you always. And thank you so much for your generosity and the very interesting work that you do. Thanks for everybody who decided to spend their morning listening to us. It's very nice. So, okay. Thanks a lot. And thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for joining Ahali. Make sure you check out the episode notes to find out about the works that we discussed in this episode. And you can also visit us at ahaili.online for further information. And please feel free to get in touch if you'd like to join our live gatherings and Q&A sessions with our guests. So hope to see you next time.